0: Still here, living the dream in the drivehubler.com studio. I'm James Boyd, alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. You're listening to 107.5 The Fan. Jimmy, we had a good time so far talking about all things NFL. I won't say good time, actually. We've had a serious time talking about all things NFL, civilly with the Colts and the alleged gambling incident. But now to pivot to... Perhaps a more positive topic, we can talk about the NBA draft, IU, Purdue, IU listeners out there, don't you boo me just yet. We have <laughs> Isaac Trotter, my uh, fellow Illini on the line. He covers college basketball for 24-7 Sports. So, Isaac, how are you doing, my man?
1: Good, man. Good to, good to link up with you again. It's been a while, but uh, I'm fun to talk to you.
0: I know. It's always been a while with these guys, but I tell all of the listeners out there that my friends always respond when I need them. So those are the best kinds of friends. So we'll dive into it. I know the big news here this week was that Trace Jackson Davis worked out for the Pacers. I was actually (laughs) at a park in the parking lot, you know, where they do all the media things to go talk to the ant fever at their practice. And it was packed. I was like, wow, this guy's a big deal, obviously. So from your perspective, Being a Big Ten guy, seeing Trace Jackson Davis throughout college, how do you think he can maybe translate some of those special qualities he has to the NBA despite some of the limitations he has in his game?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I wasn't a big Trace Jackson Davis fan for the first few years of his career, but, man, he really just – like wowed me and really won me over this past year. Just the playmaking that he was able to add to his game. You know, he's never really been, you know, a three-point shooter. That's been a big, uh, like, conversation point, talking point with Trace Jackson Davis. But at the end of the day, he has turned into one of the most productive college players. And I think what you see is on the defensive end of the floor – He's just a madman. He has ability to guard ball screens in different ways. His ability at 6 foot 8 he has a 7 foot 1 wingspan but he could really be a rim protector. He can loom in the dunker spot. Like he just does so many good things for you offensively and defensively and the passing that he added to his bag re, like especially last year was phenomenal. He put that Indiana team on his back for months and carried them. Winning is important to him. And so if you if you look at what he is late in the first round early in that second round I feel like he's just going to come in and find a way to, to just fill in a, a gap in any which way in, in a rotation. I don't think he's a, a plug-and-play starter. I don't know if he's going to flirt with the all-rookie team, right, his first or first year, but I do think that he is a winning, impactful piece that can help a team like the Pacers just take a big jump as their seventh or eighth man off the bench.
0: So did you ever get to the bottom of why Brad Underwood did not double Trace Jackson <laughs> Davis? I, I, have to, I have to ask. I have to ask. I'm still <laughs> scarred by this. Still scarred.
1: Pain and suffering. That is what it was. Just to to add pain and suffering so they could learn to be better, learn to be better. Yeah, uh, I joke because I felt like Dane Danger, the Illinois big man. I don't know if he ever recovered from that moment because Trace Jackson Davis really just put on a show that night. I feel like that's a game that a lot of people will not forget about anytime soon. He was as good as any player. That was as good a performance as we've seen at the college game last year.
2: Isaac, when you look up and down mock draft boards, when you analyze the prospects yourself, obviously once we get outside of the top three, debatably, you're really looking at, okay, projection of where this guy can be three, four, five years. But when you break it down position by position, where do you feel the deepest area as this draft gets further and further is?
1: Yeah, I feel like there's some guys here in this second unit of this draft that I feel like are high-prioritized recruits coming up that have kind of had iffy first years of college. Like I look at like a Nick Smith kind of had an iffy year at college after being, or after being the number one recruit in the class of 2022. You know, uh, you also look at Jet Howard out of Michigan. He kind of had an iffy close to the, to the regular season. So it feels like there's a lot of these like high-prioritized recruits that are big names that didn't necessarily help themselves. in college, Keontae George is another one. And so you enter this draft, and I'm at the NBA Draft Combine talking to people, and there's a lot of unknowns with guys that we felt pretty good about when they were getting done with their high school and on the grassroots circuit, but then they go to college and a few flaws of their game get exposed. So I think a lot of teams are kind of like pilfering through that and being like, you know, should we put too much stock into one bad year of college and more look at everything that we see, or is there some red flags that were opened up? So those are some of the big things that I've been looking at and have been really intrigued by throughout this NBA draft, and we're going to get some answers here in a couple weeks.
0: So one player who obviously is another beloved IU guy is Jalen Hood-Shifino, and watching him throughout college basketball season, it was pretty obvious that his game would translate easier to the pro level because of his size, the shot making, the ball handling, things like that. And so what do you see from him as far as his ability to impact an NBA franchise potentially as one of those lead guards? Yeah, I feel like for him it's
1: all about the development, and he's still a young guy, but I think as the season kind of went along, his pull-up jumper was something that was really, really good some games, and then other games it would just kind of dissipate. And so there's like some consistency that needs to be there. You know, a lot of teams like the scouting to say force him left for his pull-up, that was a little bit of a problem, but when he gets to his right hand for the pull-up, it's no big deal. I feel like at the next level that has to become a different part of his game. But you talk to Jalen at the NBA Combine, you talk to people around him, they just rave about this guy. Like, just the, the person that he is, the winning player that he's been. You know, in, in high school, he's playing down at Mount Bird, down in Florida with great players. And he just finds a way to impact and put his fingerprints on winning. And again, we saw it last year with Indiana. Early in the year, Xavier Johnson and him are sharing the backcourt. He's trying to find his way. And then Xavier Johnson goes down and he goes, hey, it's my turn to step up. And he did that. And so I feel like there's a, there's a big piece of his game that can be really, really intriguing. I look at him in the mid-teens. You know, I think that you've seen some te- some mock drafts that are like, hey, he's a top ten pick. I-, I don't know if I'm there yet, but I think in the mid teens, you look at a big, capable shot maker, and if he gets to his pull up and he then continues to add his finishing around the rim, I mean, he he really could be a three level scorer at the next level, and that's kind of what we're all looking for, especially with his the, the length and the size that he brings from the lead guard spot.
2: Isaac Trotter, a twenty four seven Sports national college basketball f- writer for them, joins us here on the Fan. Isaac, I want to stay in the Big Ten for a second. There was a ton of hype around Keegan Murray last year in the lead-up to the draft, and obviously he had himself a, a fine rookie campaign, but when you saw him and his brother out on the floor at times last season, obviously not this past year, but two seasons ago, it was like, man, maybe this is going to be the next combo or duo of brothers that are able to make good not only at the college ranks, but do it at the next level. A similar... Ascension from a sixth man role to a leader on a team happened with Chris this year. Maybe not as high volume scoring as his brother was able to do, but still projects well at the back half of the first round. What do you see when you look at Chris Murray and where his fit could be in this league?
1: I really like him. I I think there's a lot of parts of his game that are really good. I think he's a much better defender than Keegan was at this part of his game. And I think that's kind of what will keep him on the floor. Obviously, Keegan's such a talented offensive player and really shot the cover off the ball at Iowa and obviously last year for the Kings. But I think Chris has to develop a little bit more of the jumper. I think he shot about 33% from three-point range this past season on really good volume. He's taking tough shots. He was kind of their bail-me-out guy for Iowa. But I, I think defensively he can be a, a, one of those guys. Like, we all look for wing stoppers. That's like the new thing you're trying to find. I don't know if, if Chris Murray had got a chance to show that a ton last year at Iowa, but I think he can as he moves forward where he has a little bit less of an offensive role. And, again, like I talk about some of those little things with him, he's a great cutter he's a great offensive rebounder. He's always in the right spot defensively. Like those little things are easy. Like you can see that he was born and raised in a basketball family. His dad has played for a long time. Like it's a, it's he's a basketball junkie. And so I feel like Chris is a is an interesting prospect because a lot of people lump him in as Keegan, but they're really different. They're very different. And I think they're going to have very different roles at the next level, but they're both going to impact winning.
0: So Isaac You've obviously seen a lot of Zach Eady over the years. He's coming back for his fourth season. I don't know if we've seen a player in the last 20 to 25 years sort of make that leap that he took this past season to where he went from being, okay, a pretty good player, to, okay, he's a national player of the year. What do you expect from him going into another season where he knows he is the top guy this time around? And also, how much pressure does that put on Purdue to perform better in the tournament?
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like Purdue enters this year as Final Four or bust. It feels like the the narrative around them, and if they make the Final Four, it's a, it's an automatic great success. And getting Edie back is such a huge win for not only for for Purdue but for the whole sport of college basketball. Getting a second year out of a national player of the year contender is phenomenal. And you know, he averages twenty two and thirteen last year, and I legitimately head into this year going is twenty five and fifteen you know, capable. I think that's in the range of potential outcomes. He, he, he's so good. He's so dominant. He got so much better, but I think he can even raise his game to a new height. I think he could be a better free throw shooter. I think that Purdue's offense can help him more as long as some of these other guys continue to grow. And, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith needing to take steps forward from year one to year two as guards, and, you know, I look at some of the other, the other capable supporting cast pieces. Mason Gillis has to get back to shooting at a high level. Ethan Morton has to turn himself into more of an offensive threat. Can they get anything from any of the new guys? The Southern Illinois transfer, or maybe some of the freshmen that are coming in. So, it feels like all of these supporting cast pieces, getting them back, there should be a very, very capable team. I think this is a really good team. I think they're going to be awesome in big 10 play, but still some of those same concerns I still have in March and I probably will have them in March until we see, you know, hey, maybe Fletcher Lawyer takes a really, really big jump and Braden Smith takes a really big jump because I know what Zach Eady does. And if anybody blames that loss in the first round on Zach Eady, we just didn't watch the same game because he was phenomenal in that game and, and honestly did more than enough to help Purdue win.
0: So I'm not going to lie, when I look at Purdue matchups in the postseason, particularly in the NCAA tournament, I'm always like, does the other team have an old guard and is he little and quick? Because if that's the case, I think they're going to lose because it just seems like that's the recipe for a lot of teams, honestly, is when you see these upsets, there's guards that have been there for three, four, five years. They're quick. They can shoot. They're good decision makers. But jokes aside, getting back to Zach Eady, how much – is too much to expect from him because I do think that some of the limitations with this team is that when they face better competition, it's harder to just throw it inside to the big guy and let him dominate if the other guys aren't at least keeping the defense honest.
1: Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, that was the thing in, in that first round loss to Fairly Dickinson. There's, you know, 15 to 20 possessions on film where Zach is surrounded by three dudes in the paint and Purdue is shooting horse three-pointers and can't knock them down, right? Like, that the, your wide-open feet set multiple things. You could read the entire Indy star before you take a three. Like, you have a ton of time to pull the trigger there. Like, and, and they just couldn't knock it down. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, with this supporting cast, like, it's on them. And, you know, we can, you know, put some blame on that painter. How do you find a way to potentially, uh, you know, potentially do different things scheme-wise? But for me, scheme-wise, if you get wide open threes over and over and over again, that's a pretty good look. And it's on the guys to knock it down. I, I honestly do have confidence that this supporting cast can get better and take strides in year two as a whole team. And we talk a ton about, like, getting old, staying old, and having continuity, Purdue will have all of that. And so I feel pretty good about them in the regular season. But again, they have to prove it in March.
2: Isaac Trotter, National College basketball writer for 24-7 Sports, with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Isaac, I know this is a really tough question to answer because this has basically been lightning in a bottle for the last couple of games in the NBA Finals. And even the Nuggets probably didn't know what they had in terms of getting contributions in a postseason from a rookie. But is there a Christian Brown type within the back end of this draft that could help a contender or potentially find a role to help a contender? Those that are towards, like I said, the back end of the draft, they're looking for developmental pieces on on cheap deals.
1: No, I think it's a great question. I think a lot of people are looking for it. One guy that really stood out to me at the NBA Draft Combine was Olivier Maxence Prosper out of Marquette. Phenomenal defender, shot the cover off the ball. His ability to play in pick and rolls was something really improved. But really, how he's going to make his money at the next level is defense and playing hard. And he did all of those things for a Marquette team that won the Big East, won the Big East title. And you got a two seed in the NCAA tournament. And so he had that similar role. And those are the guys that I kind of like to look for in the NBA draft. Like when you're in college, like I don't necessarily need to see like the super high usage rate. Hey, I got 15 to 18 shots a game. Like I like to see guys who ace it in their roles that we potentially could see at the NBA level. And that's exactly what Prosper did. And Omax is kind of his nickname. And I love him late in the first round. I think he's a a guy that could absolutely be a winning piece for you. Um, I, I think when you're also looking at that, I, I look at Jaime Jaquez out of UCLA, older, winner, tough, did everything for UCLA, like literally everything, guarded one through five, handled the ball, post up, run, pick and rolls, be a catch and shoot guy like he did everything. And he has been wowing teams throughout the pre-draft process. You know, a lot of guys think that he could potentially rise up. But if he's there in the mid-20s, I think he's a plug-and-play, role-player, awesome player that can help you win games in the NBA playoffs.
0: What did you think of Christian Brown's performance in the finals? Because I was watching it last night and thinking, oh, my goodness, this kid has a chance to do something that's really, really special, which is win a national championship, win an NBA championship, and be a factor in both of them he's just a
1: dog, man. Like he is just like every loose ball he gets his hands on. I felt like every play, like he's involved in that play. And that's exactly what his job was at Kansas, right? He just was a wrecking ball. He comes in and immediately the pace of the game changes, the energy of the game changes. And I think you can hear him a lot because he's a trash talker. But I think (laughs) you really feel him too. Like you feel his presence on a game and like opposing guards, like start to get a little bit wary, like when he's in the passing lanes, because he does a great job of like getting at that inside hand, hand out and immediately tipping balls and just I I look for guys that can get their hands on a lot of passes and get a lot of deflections and that's when Christians Brown's MO for his entire career and it really doesn't surprise me to see what he's doing for the Nuggets he's just a perfect fit for them
2: Isaac operating under the assumption that the Pacers stay at seven what do you think the best fit from a player standpoint would be for that team and honestly even if it's not best fit what do you think would have the biggest impact for the Pacers want to go which would be back into the play-in slash playoff conversation next year they need wings
1: yeah i'm <laughs> yeah. a huge cam whitmore fan huge cam whitmore fan i think that he has a chance to be a really really special player and you know i think a lot of people talk about the jumper last year and it didn't really go you know the best way for him but you know he had an injury at a thumb injury before the season and i think he's going to grow as a shooter but everything else about him, like he is legitimately has the most bounce I've I've seen of a wing prospect in this draft. He is absolutely ridiculous, just athleticism-wise. He can go through multiple defenders at the rim and put you on posters. You know, he's playing last year before the season, before he even got to Villanova. He's playing for Team USA's under-18 team, and they're, they're playing good competition overseas, and he just looks like a man amongst boys. Like He's playing with five-star talent, and he just looks like the, a, a, a different player, just a different player. And so his body and how young he is and how explosive he can be and just the rim pressure that he puts that feels like a phenomenal fit for a high IQ one of the best point guards in the league and Tyree Halliburton I feel like Tyree Saliburton would make Cam Whitmore's job so much easier and long term wise I think Whitmore would be a phenomenal defender now the problem is I don't know if he's going to be there at seven because I think a lot of teams really like him too
0: so Isaac my final question because I've been in hibernation I've been in hiding since you know Illinois was embarrassed last season by IU will Illinois our beloved Illini get a game off of these guys this coming season
1: I think they will I think I think Illinois is set up to give Indiana some hard times to be honest I think Illinois is old Illinois projects to be really really good defensively I still have some questions about Indiana's perimeter shooting um, and some of their front court pieces I like on paper, but we just have to see how it all, you know, kind of comes together. And I think Xavier Johnson is as important to any player or as any team in the Big Ten other than Zach Eady. Like they just have to have him healthy and, and, and be really, really good. But if Illinois' old guys can start to gel a little bit better together, I think this roster might not be as talented as last year's, but. The pieces just fit together, I think, a little bit better. So Illinois should be really, really good defensively, and those Illinois-Indiana wars should be you know, just high-level stuff this winter.
0: Oh, that was music to my ears, Isaac. We got Jimmy Cook, this IU guy over here cringing. I'm sure listeners are like, James, we're going to like stone you next time we see you. <laughs>
2: At Romeoville, kid. When that happens, you know the day, folks. You know what to do.
0: I'm with all the smoke. But Isaac, my man, thank you for coming on. You uh, Keep up the great work, man. I love to see your career taking off. And uh, we'll have to play some pickup basketball soon just to kind of reminisce.
1: Thanks,
0: man. Anytime. All right. That was Isaac Trotter, national college basketball reporter for 24-7 Sports.
2: Jimmy Cook and James Boyd coming to you from the Drivehuber.com studios. Happy Thursday to on the Fan Midday Show. Eddie Garrison along with us as well. We've bounced around a number of different topics throughout the show so far today. We'll resume our NBA conversation, though, this time at the national level. One of the greats, Howard Beck, nice enough to take some time with us. You can currently find his work with GQ Sports, Locked On Network, of course, in the past with Sports Illustrated, New York Times, LA Daily News, one of the very best at covering the NBA, making some time with us post-NBA Finals Game 3. Howard, as you watched all that unfold last night, the conversations continued to be about Miami's ability to respond in the fourth quarter and would those proper adjustments be made? And Denver, much like they did Game 1, felt like they had a... Thumb on Miami in the second half, unable to give them an inch.
3: Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody should be surprised at this point, although I don't know what, you know, everybody expects uh, in a series where uh, both of these teams have been kind of, you know, hard to peg for very different reasons. But look, the Nuggets, as they showed in game one and and reinforced last night, um, have a talent advantage. They have a size advantage. They absolutely have an advantage in the paint. Uh, We saw that play out in the rebounding numbers. We saw that play out in points in the paint and just their field goal percentage in the paint. Um, They just have more dynamism in their offense. And, you know, I, I just think it was in some ways, you know, everything that the Nuggets do feels like some sort of statement because they have been, you know, dealing with some degree of either skepticism, indifference or ignorance about their talent for a while now. And, um, You know, When they lose a game at home and they lose home court advantage in game two, I do think there was a natural curiosity, well, what are these guys really made of? We know what they've been able to accomplish. We know the gaudy numbers that that Jokic in particular puts up. We know that they had the best record in the West, but um, what are they going to do when they finally face some adversity in this postseason run? And this is really, I'd say that You know, truly the first time they faced that was losing home court advantage in this finals by losing game two. And, you know, an an incredible, um, you know, know, reaffirmation last night of who they are.
0: Howard, when it comes to Nikola Jokic, I was making this joke last night watching the game. He does not miss from 15 feet in, but he's not, you know, the physically imposing player like Shaq was or one of those players where you just throw it in, you know, prime Dwight Howard, I'm just going to dunk all over you, and that's how my efficiency is so high. Have you ever seen a player who plays sort of below the rim and just has that touch where it seems like every shot he throws up, it always rolls in or bounces in instead of bouncing out?
3: It's kind of wild that, you know, even what look like awkward shots, off-balance shots, it doesn't look like it's – Coming off of his hand with any kind of touch, but it hits the rim and everything, it, like nothing ever falls off the rim. It only falls in, right? It, it, like, um, I guess, you know, the, like, you know, the, the, the usual expression is he's got a really soft touch or, or however you want to frame that. And I, I guess that's essentially it, right? Like, there's just, he's not rushed and it doesn't look pretty, um, but they always drop because he's just got this incredibly soft touch from close range, you know, whatever, ten feet and in. And no, he's not constructed like any other dominant center we've seen in NBA history. I mean he's he's an evolutionary kind of player. And, you know, I think maybe that's part of why people have had a hard time grasping his greatness, because he doesn't he doesn't look like the typical, you know, dominant NBA player or especially dominant big. He doesn't play like like his predecessors. But, I look, it, it's a strange analogy, but it's kind of like with Steph. Nobody knew what to make with Steph, of Steph Curry for years. And still, I feel like, and I wrote about this last year when he, when the Warriors were back in the finals, that people never talk about Steph as being dominant because dominant, it, you know, kind of is always implied in the NBA some degree of, of physicality or incredible mm-hmm. athleticism, you know, big hops, um, you know, b- brutish force. But, like, Jokic... Can can win with force, but it's not it's not the way his game is constructed. And yeah, he's a pass first center who plays like a point guard and then scores when he has to, and and doesn't do it in the old school way of just backing guys down and dunking on him.
2: Howard, when you look at this team, you look at how they're constructed and a norm a number of their key contributors, including the big ones, Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic. Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon are all under contract and underneath team control to a point that, okay, they're able to really see what this thing is for what it is this season and beyond, but for so long, and I, well, I think Michael Malone over-exaggerated to an extent. I mean, there's no doubt that Denver hasn't always gotten the love in this run that they've deserved, but when you look at how that might change now moving forward, this series isn't over, but assuming they, put a cap on it here in a couple of games. What does this change the perception of the nuggets moving forward and how sustainable is this run of, okay, we've got one. Let's see if we can go get another one. Now, if they do end up closing this thing out.
3: Yeah. I mean, obviously look, they've got a couple wins to go still and you know, we're not going to count out Miami by any stretch given the way that the heat are constantly uh, disproving everything and, and fighting back. So if the Nuggets do win this championship, you know, and, and obviously I think Jokic will probably be this, this Finals MVP, um, it is a crowning achievement for a team and a player that yes, we've been kind of maybe I don't want to say overlooking. Even I mean I, I know they feel that way, but the fact is, like you do have when you haven't accomplished anything, no one you don't get the recognition until you actually accomplish it. And Jokic had gotten individual recognition, and nobody had overlooked that. He won back-to-back MVPs and was was in second in the MVP race this year. Like the 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 acknowledgement has been there but this is a league where you know for for better or worse um, coverage of discussions of the NBA tend to revolve around a handful of 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 supreme players and you know LeBron and Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and a bunch of these guys have taken up so much of the oxygen of that discussion for so long that I think that's where people have maybe not you know, felt like the Nuggets got their due. If you win a championship, you will get your due. You win a championship with a young group that they have, and you have many more years to come of being able to to repeat this and and make it back, that will do a lot for them as well. But I guarantee you, when we get to October, and the Lakers will have, you know, refortified a little bit around LeBron James and Anthony Davis, and we'll see what the Clippers do with, with their core, and the Suns will have refilled the roster around Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. We're going to be back to obsessing over a lot of the same characters. Like it's just the way it goes, and the Nuggets will probably complain again about being overlooked. Um, and they, I think they actually enjoy that. I think, I think they, you know, on some level, it's a, it's a contradiction in terms. But like they, they enjoy the anonymity and 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 not having necessarily all the spotlight and pressure on them. But at the same time, they kind of, you know, uh, push against it because they feel like they're not getting their due. But I do think that there's a benefit to it. Uh, for them, so it's 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 a it's a kind of a funny conundrum, but uh, you know they're they're here to stay, whether they win this championship or not, because the core is young and still evolving and still improving, and under contract, uh, they'll eventually have some financial pressures under this new CBA as as everybody will, but uh, this is absolutely a sustainable uh, uh, you know powerhouse in the West.
0: How when you look at what the Heat have been able to do this postseason in particular being a team that months ago we all thought probably weren't even going to be in the playoffs how much credit do you give Eric Spolster for being, being able to galvanize this group empower this group and also adjust readjust adjust again and just find ways to you know make it work
3: yeah I mean it's it's remarkable um, I was looking this up the other day and I'm gonna have to uh, pull this up while we're talking so I make sure I get the numbers right here but if I if you go back to two thousand the Miami heat I think it's like the second most number uh, second most finals appearances um, since two thousand and I just found it interesting because we don't really think about you know we, you know obviously the The Spurs have been, you know, a a dynasty of the last 20-something years, and the Warriors, of course, had their run. And The Heat were in four straight finals, and the Cavs were in four straight finals. But it didn't really, until I did the math, realize, like, you know what? Miami's actually been consistently, for the last 20 years, one of the best franchises in the NBA. Um, And Spolster has been there for most of it. You know, obviously, first going from film room to assistant coach to head coach, and he's one of the longest tenured in the league now. They just have a consistency in the way that they do things, in the accountability that they demand of, of their players um, and the kind of players that they seek out. It's not a coincidence that they're the team with all the undrafted guys. And, you know, I know that Spolster doesn't like us talking about them that way because, you know, hey, they're just, they're just professional basketball players now. Well, okay, fine. But their path to the NBA and to the Heat was different than most guys. And it's to their credit that players who did not leap off the page when they were coming up through the ranks um, – and when undrafted because of it. Could go to Miami, that the Heat would recognize something in them in the way that they worked and the way that they fought, and said, "You make sense here. You fit here, and we're going to give you all the, the uh, you know you know opportunity in the world to you know become a, a, a good end or to even great NBA player." So um, there's a personality to that team and to that franchise, and it, and it has sh- never shown more than in this season where you know they could underachieve finish 7th in the East, lose a play-in game, fall to 8th, and then, you know, come all the way to the finals.
2: Does this run at all change how we should perceive or value teams based on seeding outside of your number 1 and, like, number 2 seeds? Like, when you're looking at the rest of the bracket, does it change that at all? Or is this just a really special run that probably is not something that's repeatable if you're a team in a, a 7 or 8 window like Miami was?
3: So, it is true that The NBA has never had more top-to-bottom parity than right now, and the standings this season reflected that. The compression within the standings, the fact that there were no truly elite teams at the very top, and no, not a ton of like really god awful teams at the bottom. Almost there was a a really thick middle, and statistically, it bears out. This the parity has never been greater, and we did get a six, seven, and eight seed all advancing out of the first round for the first time in, in modern history. All that said. I, I don't think this is some precedent that the Heat have established. Like, I don't think it's going to be the norm by any stretch that we're going to see, like, seven and eight seeds make it to the finals or even to the conference finals. Um, they are an outlier. They're a team that had the best record in the East a year ago. They underachieved to that seventh place spot in the East and then lost a playing game that dropped them to eight. They're not even a true eight seed in the way that the Knicks were, say, in 1999 when they made the finals as the only other uh, AC to do it. So uh, if, if anybody's saying like, oh, you know what, the regular season doesn't matter. You can just, you know, kind of, you know, wander your way through it, be seventh or eighth, and still make a run to the finals. It's not impossible. You know, there are certain teams, like, I, you know, I, I thought the Lakers had a chance because they had LeBron James, but they had a really weird season. Their record wasn't reflective of who they were. And the Heat's record wasn't really reflective of who they were either. Um, and, you know, I uh, okay couple of high seeds gags for them to get here too.
0: Howard, I'll pivot away from the NBA Finals to the local team here in Indianapolis, the Indiana Pacers. We saw Tyrese Halliburton take a step forward this season and really become a star in this league. What impresses you the most about his game and maybe being more of an aggressor when it comes to scoring which is something he's talked about as a difficulty because his automatic, you know, innate thinking is to pass first but now he's in a position where they need him to score and pass, and it seems like he started to figure it out towards the back half of the season.
3: Yeah, it's, it's always interesting, uh, young guys who come in as primary ball handlers. And, of course, he came in as, a, as a, a guy who... I don't think the NBA or the Sacramento Kings knew exactly what he would evolve into at the time they got him, and then he's sharing all that time with De'Aaron Fox, and so it was awkward, like, I think, for Tyrese Alliburton to be, you know, the, the fully realized version of himself... You know, he had to be separated from, from De'Aaron Fox, and obviously that trade has, has worked pretty well for both teams. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, you either come in as a guy who you have the ball in your hands a lot, and, and, you, and you're a great scorer who has to figure out how to become a better playmaker because, you know, guys will come in calling their own number too much, right? And then trying to figure out when to pass versus shoot. In, in Halliburton's case, it's the opposite. He's coming in as a guy who I think was more team-oriented first, was not counted on to be a big-time scorer, and is now having to learn how to to, to take that on himself. You know what? Nikola Jokic had that. Like he, the, the the Jokic as essentially you know point center hub of the Nuggets offense. Michael Malone has for years been kind of you know nudging him, harping on him to to score more because he could score at such a high rate. But he is geared to pass. First, and that's I think Halliburton as well. Um, so again, another I think obviously a weird analogy, but it it, it fits like they're they're they built the same in terms of their team mentality. Um, but I think now that Halliburton's got had a full I was going to say a full season under his belt in Indy, full season minus all the games he missed due to injury. But now that he's he's had a full year to kind of like settle in as. Uh, Clearly a focal point of the team, and he'll go into year two. Hopefully, he stays healthy. The Pacers are going to have you know plenty of opportunity in, in the next few weeks here via the draft and free agency to improve around him. Um, we'll see. Like maybe other guys will emerge as scorers, so it won't have to be as much on him. Um, they, you know, they've got some work to do to, to, to build out this roster. But I, I, just think that the way he's built his his uh, basketball IQ. His character. He's obviously great personality, really thoughtful guy. Um, They've got a really special player to build around.
2: Howard Beck hanging out with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Howard, when you look at both conferences, Eastern and Western, which team do you think has the the toughest decisions or, or could look the most different of the playoff teams this offseason when you look at whatever la wants to do if they want to try to readjust or rechange things there with the warriors and they look at their aging core where in this conference east and west do you feel the biggest turnover or changes being made from the playoff teams
3: well um so in the West, very I think it's definitely the Suns. I mean, obviously everybody saw the reports yesterday about Chris Paul and the Suns trying to figure out what to do with him. Um, and they're gonna be, you know, they're absolutely gonna be considering DeAndre Ayton trades as well. Like the two guys who are are their new core now are Kevin Durant and, and Devin Booker. And Kevin Durant is on the clock. Like he's he's up there in years and miles and a lot of injuries. They, they're gonna have to rebuild an entire roster to maximize their time with Durant and Durant and Booker as their tandem. So the Suns, I think, are going to have the most change. I don't expect to see a lot of change with the Warriors. I think that core is staying together. They're going to have to make some moves, and maybe they you know, maybe they trade Jordan Poole, maybe they trade one of their other young guys. But the Warriors core is staying together. The Lakers already made most of their major moves. I don't believe any of the Kyrie stuff. I, I think they're probably re-signing most of the guys that they acquired midseason. So it, it's, it's the Suns who have... I think the most change among the top teams in the West In the East, you know, is James Harden going to leave Philly to go back to Houston? I don't understand why this is a thing. I don't understand why he would do that, <laughs> but clearly it's, it's the thing. Um, and if he leaves, then the Sixers have some serious decisions to make. But again, I don't think it's dramatic changes other than, you know, the, the loss of, of Harden. They'll find a way to, to, replace him. Daryl Morey is always pretty creative. So, um, and then the Nets, in my backyard here in Brooklyn, like I, you know, they're, you know, they headed to implode a plausible contender at midseason, which just doesn't happen in, in the NBA. And so um, they're still trying to figure out what to do with all the pieces they acquired for Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And, um, you know, I, I'll be very curious to see what they do in the offseason.
0: Last run for me, Howard, we saw that Monty Williams is going to get a, another chance to be a head coach in Detroit. Got a nice payday for that. Maybe we should have chose different career paths but um what do you think of his fit there and particularly the ability to help them grow perhaps similarly to how he helped the Suns grow when Devin Booker was pretty young over there in Phoenix
3: I mean the Suns had gone through I can't remember their play after I was like eight years or something longer mm-hmm. um and it was Monty Williams's arrival followed by Chris Paul's arrival that really turned them around you know it was the same core group otherwise and so you know, and I, and I always have, have attributed that to both of them, right? Like Chris Paul has that impact everywhere he goes. We saw it when he was with Oklahoma briefly too. Um, and so I, I think it's it's both of those things. So with Monty going to Detroit, what I'm curious about is they've got such a young group, so many, and they've got another high pick coming. Assuming they use it, I wonder what they're going to do in terms of you know using their cap room to sign some veterans. Like they need. I, I I there are, there's no there's no other Chris Paul other than Chris Paul, and who knows, maybe Chris Paul's available. I don't know that he wants to go finish his career in Detroit. But I, I, I think that you know, Monty Williams, as great a coach as he is and a and a culture setter and a tone setter you need veterans um, around your young guys to kind of, I think, accelerate that development. And the Pistons are far earlier in that curve than the Suns were at the time that Monty got there. So I don't know that it's fair to expect the same kind of immediate, you know, jump up the standings. Um, I don't even expect that the Pistons are going to make the playoffs next season. But I think Monty's the right coach. I think that. Um, They've got a lot of great young talent. Obviously, Kate Cunningham missed this entire season, so getting him back healthy is is key. But I do think that they're they're going to need to start to fortify the young core with with some bets.
2: Howard, last thing on my end. Howard Beck joining us. You can find his work with GQ Sports and a part of the Locked On podcast and Locked On Network. You had a piece that came out in GQ and on GQ Sports and GQ dot com this past week where it was a feature piece on Mike Breen. You had an opportunity to have a conversation with him, 18 years, calling the NBA Finals. I encourage you to read that wherever you can at GQ.com. And it's bang, Mike Breen on 18 years of calling the NBA Finals. There's a lot there. It's a very comprehensive conversation. If you could highlight one area that either maybe something you didn't know or most intrigued you about the voice of the NBA Finals and Mike Breen during that conversation.
3: No, thanks for the, the the plug and the kind words. I, I think actually the thing that came through most, and I've known Mike a long time because I'm here in New York and I covered the Knicks for a long time. So I, I, I've known this about Mike, but it, it, this is probably the longest we've talked was for this this Q and A, it, and it just his humility comes through. And you'll if, if, if folks read it uh, at GQ dot com, you'll you'll see it like it, and you can kind of hear his voice the way he says it. Like he's just there is he's so. Uh, just grateful for the career he's had. He's you know, this is 18th NBA Finals. That's more than anybody else has ever called. Um, he loves the game, it, and it is it is absolutely as earnest a, a, a passion for the NBA as you could possibly find. But I think what was most endearing were a couple of these stories he told me. One involving his very I asked about his very first Finals in 2006. What did he remember? And he remembered obviously being very nervous. But part of it was that an ESPN producer at that time had told him, look. A lot of casual fans are watching the finals. It'll be the first NBA they're watching all season. Make sure to kind of keep them in mind. And so Mike did this exaggerated thing with me where he said, look, I wasn't actually saying this, but it was as if I was saying things like, and he gets fouled he's gonna to go to the free-throw line now that means nobody can defend him while while he shoots the ball as if he was over explaining for people who had never seen basketball in their lives and he says that's a, you know not exactly what he said but he felt like he was doing that and his 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 nervousness and his kind of forcing things was so clear that Hubie Brown who was his you know broadcast partner for that that series it was during a timeout or halftime whatever kind of just like grabbed his arm and said hey look kid we're gonna be great. Just relax. Like, just be yourself. Do your thing. Do what you've always done. This is, you know, basically no different. And um, it was just such a great, endearing story about both of them, frankly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just uh, Mike. Mike Breen is exactly what you what you uh, feel like you'd get, you know, when you're watching him on TV. Uh, what what you see and what you hear is what you get. Like, he's he's just a wonderful person, uh, class act all the way through.
0: Not to give the entire piece away. Again, you can check this out at GQ dot com but i thought another funny part about it was seeing the story the q a kind of flow from that moment to the moment where you're asking him have you ever seen a player like jamal murray call their own bang which was <laughs> pretty crazy i mean it's funny <laughs> now even when i'm at home and you hear the bang everyone knows if you're a big nba fan like that is like either a call that is wow like fantastic for you or it's a gut punch because your team just got yep. smacked in the face so um you know Howard, when you dove into that, how cool was it to just kind of see him um, get to a point where he can, he probably never talk about it too much in depth about himself, but get to a point where he's become sort of, you know, uh, synonymous with some of these big NBA moments.
3: And it's funny, too, because if you, as you read through it, if you look for this, you'll see that almost every time I ask a question, he'll start to answer it. And eventually, by the time he's done talking, he's talking about, Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, or he's Mm -hmm. talking about players, or he's talking about fans, or he's talking... Like, he, he always ends up steering it away from himself. Um... And, again, very much, you know, Mike Green's humility coming through every time. The bang thing was, was really fun to ask him about. I know he's been asked, you know, J.J. Redick, I think, had asked him about it on his podcast earlier this year. He's done stories where he, he's talked about it, you know, the, the, the handful of, of, of double bangs that he's called at times and where, where the bang call came from. He's not the first to ever use it. I can't remember the whole backstory, unfortunately. Um, but it was fun just asking about it because I, I, my question was, like, do you, do you feel the gravity of it? when you're doing it, do you understand like how big this is for the viewer? Like this is like, there's, there's a responsibility that comes with (laughs) the bang with great bangs comes great power and responsibility, I guess. Um, And and I think he does like he's, you know, he's all about like not overdoing it, not overusing it. And even in the way he calls the game, like you can hear it. Like he does not want to come out of the gates with everything sounding like it's the biggest thing that ever happened. And there's a lot of announcers or there's some now that, that I think do that, that where they feel like they're, they're trying to manufacture the, the excitement and Mike lets the game carry him. And he, he came back to that theme several times in our conversation. I didn't use all of that, but just the idea that like the game dictates, you let the game, you know, you do all this preparation and he prepares, he kept saying he like over prepares and you end up using a tiny percentage of all the stuff that you prepare for because the whole point is, is to let the game dictate the way you call it and what you're highlighting. Um, so, but the bang conversation was a lot of fun because, you know, it is what it is. And I asked him, like, what, is there, Could we see a, tri- a triple bang, a quadruple bang? Like, how far <laughs> could this go? And uh, he was, he's not quite prepared to do the triple bang yet, but I'm still looking forward to, to one day hearing that.
0: Well, Howard, man, thank you so much for your time. Like I told you when I reached out to you, I've been reading you for quite some time. I hope you continue to do it for a very long time because you're great at it. And I think in that same vein as Mike Brin, you'll never say it yourself. So I'll say it to the listeners out there. This is one of the best in the game and doing it for, again, as long as I can remember. So, you know, good luck going forward, my man, and enjoy the rest of the NBA Finals. Thanks, Howard.
3: Appreciate it, James. Thanks, fellas.
0: All right. That was Howard Beck, covers the NBA as a contributor for GQ Sports. Still here in the drivehubula.com studio. I'm James Boyd alongside Eddie Garrison, Jimmy Cook. We've had a lot of discussions about the NFL, the Colts, the AFC South. We're going to continue that conversation here with Ben Arthur, my guy who covers the AFC South for Fox Sports. I just want to say that Ben is also a nice, a pretty nice pickup basketball player. We had a good time hooping up at the YMCA uh, during the the combine. So Ben, how you doing, man? Back from vacation?
4: I'm doing well, bro. Thanks, thanks for the shout out. Uh, really, <laughs> really appreciate it. But but no, for real, it's good to, to be on with you guys. Thanks for having me.
0: So obviously, the big news of this week here in Indianapolis is the alleged gambling violation by Isaiah Rogers Sr., the Colts cornerback, you have a unique perspective given that you cover the entire AFC South and you've sort of been around to see the redemption story for Calvin Ridley. So I guess I'll start there. What has it been like to see him back out on the field and what has he had to say about what he's learned from his experience where he lost the entire season because he bet on NFL games?
4: Yeah, I think with calvin I mean he he looks phenomenal um in Jacksonville. He's gotten real acclimated with the jags and and the offense and trevor Lawrence and and how they uh want to do things um down there and and, and I think when, when you're away from football like for a year like he was um you you find I mean he, he loved football and actually wrote a feature on it and, and he, he's always loved the game but but I think when you're uh, when you have it taken away from you for, for a year, you, you find a, a, a greater appreciation um, for it and, and you don't take the, the little things for granted, uh, like kind of the opportunity to go out there each and every day, even some of the, um, I think, the mundane of, especially during the season uh, where, you know, all the weeks sort of feel the same. Um, I think Calvin came out of it um, with a stronger appreciation and it seems like he's. You know grown a whole lot if you remember he had uh the players tribune um Mm -hmm. article um earlier in the off season explaining how he was very uh regretful uh for his actions um in in regard to to gambling and and regretted just not just how it, it, it impacted him but his loved ones his family his family having to see that news and um and And, kind of everything he had to deal with there, and then explaining uh, kind of the headspace, the dark uh, mental headspace he was in when um, you know he he did the gambling. And so, um, from all indications, and from the reporting um I was able to do um on Calvin, it, it seems like he's grown a lot um, over the past year. And you know he has definitely a hunger and an extreme focus. You know, to, to come back this season and show that he's still that guy that put up 1,400 uh, receiving yards or, or close to it in, in 2020.
2: Ben, when I look at the latest second wave that the NFL's labeled it as with gambling going on within their players across the league but I look at how monumental and just the shock value was, at least from from a media member, from a reporter, from a fan standpoint of Calvin Ridley's one-year suspension, I thought, okay, the NFL's not messing around here. Like This is a clear statement to the league. If you're caught up in this, particularly if you're doing so on NFL games, we're not going to tolerate it. Where's been the mixed messaging, misunderstanding, or... Why are these actions being taken by the players when they know that this is a league that's not going to toy around with this? They clearly, from the get-go, are not having kid gloves when it comes to players betting on the sport.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, obviously I can't speak for the, the players that um, decide to to go out and and make these decisions. I think we have to remember that at the end of the day, a lot of these guys are still extremely young in the early and, and mid twenties. And, and, you know, sometimes you, you just, unfortunately uh, you make decisions uh, that you regret and, and, you know, sometimes decisions that, you know, you're not supposed to do when, um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's very clear from uh, just the, the way the NFL has been educating players and teams that it's not okay um, I can remember the other day. I think EJ Speed or a couple other the Colts players were saying how it was very clear that gambling is is not worth it um, in terms of you know betting on games and, and whatnot. And so the messaging is clearly there, um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it happens, and and it's it's unfortunate, and and you know, from reporting from national reports. Uh, that have been circulating, it sounds like there, there could be more, may possibly a lot more to come in terms of possible violations um, of the gambling policy, and, and I guess we'll just kind of see how all that unfolds, and, and with Isaiah Rogers' situation in particular, we still don't know all the particulars of that. Uh, the league is still investigating that situation um, but yeah, I, I just think it's also important, although we, we know this messaging has been very clear about that players can't do this, that these guys are still very young and and, and that they're figuring themselves out um, at this point. Um, but it, it is, though, an unfortunate, especially when, when you have a situation like Isaiah Rogers, when he could potentially be costing himself millions of dollars, right, because he's entering the last year of his rookie contract and and whatnot. And it's a, it's a kind of a disappointing situation. Um, But yeah, the the messaging is out there, but, but I think sometimes with with young guys um, it's, I think it's impossible to be a hundred percent in terms of, you know, following the guidelines as is If kind of what I'm saying makes sense.
0: Ben to sort of pivot away from, the gambling conversation and to go back to Jacksonville, who the Colts will host in week one. Mm -hmm. What do you think? And I know you had a piece recently on Trevor Lawrence, his ascension, him being sort of the top dog for that franchise. Now a clear franchise quarterback. What do you think Calvin Ridley adds to that team and their ability to sort of put a hold on this division?
4: Yeah. Like I said, I mean, he's a, he, he had that like fourteen hundred, you know, receiving yards season with the Falcons a few years ago. He's a proven number one receiver, and, and that's what he's going to give Trevor Lawrence and this offense. Uh, Christian Kirk was the the Jacksonville's number one option last season, and you know had a career year really. Really shut people up about kind of the the big contract mm-hmm. he got, and you know everyone was like, "Man, why is why is Christian Kirk getting a bag like that?" But but he really um, showed out and, and performed like a number one receiver. Um, but in Calvin, you, you have a guy who who's like a, a bona fide number one. And so when you have when you can add Calvin Ridley to an offense where you already have a Christian Kirk who becomes your one B or wide receiver two or whatever, and then you, you have an Evan Ingram who's you know a really great uh, a tight end a pass catching option for Trevor Lawrence uh, and Zay Jones. I, I think people have to remember Zay Jones um, had I think it was eighty plus receptions uh, for uh, Jags for for ja- Jacksonville um, last season, and, and so. It's just kind of like the cherry on top almost for for Trevor Lawrence in terms of the weapons he has around him. I mean, no one else in the division has anything close to what uh, uh, Trevor Lawrence has. Uh, on top of him already being uh, like the top quarterback in the division, he has the best line and he has the best receiving core. Um, in the division. And and so I, I think it, it's it, it kind of, they, they have the foundation in place for Trevor and, and, and for that offense uh, in Jacksonville to, to take another huge step forward. And I know for them, the, the big goal is, is kind of doing what they did at the end of last season again, right? Being now it's now it's trying to be consistent to, to building off of that and making sure it's not a, a one hit wonder what happened at the end of last year. And I think Calvin Ridley really, um, helps them on paper, kind of take that to the next level.
2: Ben Arthur covers the AFC South for Fox sports with us here on the fan midday show. Deandre Hopkins slated to fly to Nashville on Sunday per Tom Pilcero visit with the Titans. A is this a clear indication that at this point in his career or at least for this season, He's interested in where can I find the most money? And B, whether it's that or not, what does this do, if at all, to Tennessee when you look at where they are at as a franchise in a South that, even though they had opportunities to close it out, like your piece mentions, it looks like this is going to be Jacksonville's for the taking and Jacksonville's to run for the coming seasons until things change within the other teams in the South.
4: Yeah, I, I think with DeAndre Hopkins, it's still kind of hard, hard to see exactly what he's looking for. As you said, I mean, I, I think money is always going to play a factor. Um, but uh, you, you would think that maybe at, at this stage in, in his career, DeAndre would, would maybe want to go to uh, kind of be that cherry on top, so to speak, for for one of the teams truly in contention uh, for a Super Bowl like I don't know like, like the bills or if the Chiefs need another receiver um, but we have to remember that with DeAndre Hopkins he he has a lot of relationships in the Titans building. Um, Mike Rabel was in Houston with him uh, the offensive coordinator uh, Tim Kelly was with him in Houston he was Hopkins. Uh, play caller for a season in Houston that the Titans de- defensive coordinator, Shane Bone was also in Houston. I mean, there are a lot of uh, ties from a, a relationship standpoint um, and across the league. A, a lot of guys do want to play for Mike Rabel, just kind of the way he runs his ship that the culture in place, even if the Titans aren't on paper necessarily <laughs> as good as they've been in previous seasons. I, I think, Uh, That, like I said, this is Jacksonville's division to lose, but I do still think the Titans will be um, competitive um, in the playoff race. And then just in terms of what DeAndre Hopkins would give the Titans, I mean, the Titans have one of the worst receiving rooms in in the NFL. I mean, they were pretty bad last year and they haven't really done a whole lot to add to that room, which has kind of surprised a lot of people here in Nashville, I mean, they released Robert Woods and then they didn't draft a receiver until the seventh round and and picked up a, a veteran kind of reserve and, and Chris Moore. And so there have been a lot of questions. And, and so I think if you can bring in a guy like DeAndre Hopkins to, to pair with uh, Traylon Burks, who I who I believe uh, is going to make a really big uh, year two jump just because he, he looks like a completely different player in offseason practices. Um, I think if you can have him uh, kind of take pressure off Traylon Burks um, and, and mentor him and, and even give pointers to the to the DBs on the other side, the Titans have a really young uh, DB room apart from their two starting safeties. They have a lot of young cornerbacks. And so um, you think about the overall positive impact that DeAndre could have on the Titans, even if they're not one of the quote-unquote top teams in the AFC at the moment. Uh, I think there, there are a lot of reasons um, why it would be, be appealing, um, but but I, I guess we'll see. I mean, the Titans, they have kind of been burned by veteran, you know, highly touted receivers the last couple years. Julio Jones was supposed to be this great addition for them a couple years ago, and, and that didn't work out. He missed a ton of games with a hamstring injury. Robert Woods didn't work out. He lasted just a season. So, um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of see how this all shakes. But uh, like I said, there are a lot of strong relationships between Hopkins and the Titans side.
0: Ben, when you look at the quarterbacks in this division, obviously top dog, like we've previously stated, is Trevor Lawrence. But then three of the top four rookie quarterbacks come to the AFC South. I know you got a piece on C.J. Stroud. Will Levis is now in Tennessee. He might have an opportunity to play, depending on how things go with that QB competition. And then here in Indy, we have the QB competition of Anthony Richardson and Gardner Minshew. But with Anthony in particular, what perhaps entices you about what he could do in Shane Steichen's offense alongside a guy like Jonathan Taylor, who is top five of his position?
4: Yeah, I mean, you, you you kind of said it there. I mean, you, you just kind of think, James, of of kind of the, the potential of a of an option offense, right? With having Anthony Richardson um, under center, we all know what Shane Steichen was able to do uh, with the. No, I mean, Anthony Richardson and Jalen Hurts are different. But they're both dual threat. But they're different kind kinds of dual threat quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. But you think of the foundation of what. What was able to do with Jalen and helping him become the MVP caliber, you know, star quarterback he he blossomed blossomed into last season, and I think it's very natural to to think about uh, Shane being able to do similar types of concepts with Anthony Richardson and potentially on steroids just because he is a better athlete. Um, ben Hurts, maybe not as polished, but, but you think of the potential and upside, um, it's certainly there. And you, you kind of think of a, a Lamar Jackson type of offense too. And, and, and when you have a dynamic running back like Jonathan Taylor, assuming he gets back to his all pro form from 2021, I mean, it, it could be some really exciting looks. Um, that that we see, and and I know that uh, not long after uh, Anthony Richardson was drafted, he he had talked uh, to you guys about um, being able, in in this offense, being able to do some of the things that, uh, you know, he saw Jalen, that he saw Steichen do with Mm -hmm. Jalen in Philly. And and so I think there's a lot of excitement. You know, from that point of view, but, but as we all know, I mean, it's going to be a long road of of ups and downs with Anthony Richardson, a guy who just turned 21, a, a guy who started just 12, 13 games at Florida. So, so, um, it's going to be a long process in terms of the development, but you think of the potential in terms of what the offense could look like in terms of, uh, the multiplicity of it and, and and being able to give defenses different looks just because you have a guy in Anthony Richardson who could beat you with his arm or his legs and then having a running back next to him who's really top three in the league when he's fully healthy, um, I, I think there, that's a lot of reason for excitement.
2: Ben, with the news that Dalvin Cook is projected to be released by the Minnesota Vikings... And you look at where the Colts are at with Jonathan Taylor right now. The Titans are obviously with restructuring. Next season is going to be a free agency year for Derrick Henry. And you go look at some of the big name running backs that are either trying to fight off of the tag or are realizing that more and more teams are in this camp of we're not giving long, multi-year, high-level dollar amount deals to a position that is expendable. When you look at the Colts situation, I'm not saying don't pay Jonathan Taylor, but are we at a point in the league where five-year deals, maybe even four-year deals, regardless of how old you are, are either becoming outdated to a point that three-year deals are safe, or will we continue to see teams reset the market like the Panthers did with Christian McCaffrey, and then by the time you're halfway through that contract, realize that this wasn't a good decision for our franchise it's time to cut bait and try to move on?
4: Yeah, I think it's it's kind of the latter, right? I, it's definitely a changing of, of the guard in terms of how teams and how, how fans, how, how how we view um, the value of the running back position. I, I think versatility, uh, of course, is kind of... of the utmost importance now. You, you look at the guys who um, are commanding big money in a lot of ways now are, are guys or, or, or the, 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 the running backs who seem to have the most interest are, are the ones who are able to do multiple things. I mean, even though Christian McCaffrey and the Panthers didn't uh, work out, I mean, he, he's in a situation in San Francisco where they're really utilizing him as both a runner and the phenomenal pass catcher that he is, we know what Alvin Kamara um, has done uh, with the Saints, the, the value of a, a guy like um, Austin Eckler. I mean, I, I don't, yeah, it, it just in terms of kind of those really long deals for running backs, I, I'm not sure what we're going to see that um, as, a, as a trend anymore just because of the way football is headed and 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 I think we see a lot of teams now just look to have it making sure they have two three guys that they can depend on right like even I just think in the division with Jacksonville like Travis Etienne really had his true rookie season this past year because he missed his entire you know true rookie season his uh um the uh, the 2021 season due to injury and he, and he really showed that, that he's a guy in, in 2022. But what does Jacksonville do? They, they get a guy in the third round and take Bigsby who's, uh, you know, uh, you know, high third round pick, you know, won of the top bats in the SEC last season. And, you know, I won't be so surprised if, um, you know, they're having Kate Bigsby take a, a lot of um, kind of the workload off of ETN. And, and ETN is a guy that doesn't even have as much tread on his tires as, some of the other, you know, established bell cow backs that that we think of, and so it's just a different time uh, for running backs. Versatility, as I said, being having guys who can catch the ball, um, you know, proficiently at the backfield, out of the backfield, that's of um, utmost importance. But but then I think kind of with Jonathan Taylor's situation, I think in in his favor. When you do have you know, a young franchise quarterback that you're looking to groom, I think you, you, you always want a guy who you know that you can give it to 15, uh, 20 times a game if needed and really take pressure off. And so I think if Jonathan Taylor um, you know, comes back healthy and stays healthy and, and kind of looks more like he did in 2021, it's going to be a really – Tough situation for, um, for for Indy to 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 kind of let him walk or not give him you know premium dollar just because of the value he means to that particular team. Um, so it's an interesting conversation, um, and the, the the running back position continues to evolve. Um, but but I think there, there's always going to be room for for teams, especially with young quarterbacks needing them to with needing to give them room and time to develop when you have a guy that you know, you can give them the ball 15, 20 times. Um, I think there is ease that comes with that. If you're a franchise,
0: Ben, when we look at the rookie quarterbacks in this class. I always thought that Bryce Young was the best one. Obviously the Panthers thought that too, and drafted him number one, but with CJ, when I saw him at the combine, as far as who will go number two, who'll be that second quarterback off the board, what jumped out to me was not only his accuracy, the way he throws the ball, things like that, but was the confidence. And I read your story that you had about him, and he had this great quote in the introductory press conference where he says, you know, uh, you know, Ohio State, whereas the quarterback, you're right under LeBron. You know, you're the leader of the whole yeah. state <laughs> and dealing with that yeah. pressure. And so what has it been like to see him sort of get implemented with the Houston Texans and what he could possibly mean to another franchise in this AFC South division that's trying to right the ship and enter a new era.
4: Yeah, I, I think with with CJ, I mean, he's going to have a lot of eyeballs on him, obviously. I, I think he, with, with Houston, that they've kind of done some some similar to, to what uh, in Indy, what, what they've kind of been doing with Anthony Richardson in that at times, it, it, he's kind of split reps with the ones, but you've also seen him get extended look with the twos as mm-hmm. he continues to uh, you know, learn how to, to, to read these NFL coverages and, and and what opposing defenses are throwing at him. And, um, and and so he seems to really be coming along. He, he seems to be ahead of schedule, according to what uh, D'Amico Rimes has said, just in his poise, in, in his confidence and his eagerness to learn. Uh, the, actually the other day, the, um, or what was it last week? Uh, the Titans, DC, Matt Burke had, had mentioned how, uh, the, the defense in, in, uh, like a session in, in, team drills or whatever, they, they threw CJ a look that he didn't quite grasp or comprehend. And then after practices, you know, he was walking away. Like CJ, like ran him, you know, yelled and ran him down and, and said like, Hey, like Kind of what was going on here, and so I, I think what, when you have a guy who's who you know is very talented, um, but but knows that he has a long way to go and is eager to learn and is taking people, whether it's veteran players or you know coaches on the other side of the ball, and really trying to understand what he's seeing and, and what's going on and how to beat certain things. Um, that that's. Um, you know, real positive sign. And, and, you know, obviously we're not really going to know what the Texans have in CJ for real until the the games start. But, but in terms of doing everything right at this stage um, in terms of being handling, you know, extended reps with the twos and, and, you know, dealing with mistakes and, taking the brains of the defense I think he's kind of checking all those boxes right now
0: Ben I really appreciate your time man when I hit you up last week and you're on vacation I was like oh we have to get him next time and so you're a man of your word I appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about the AFC South what you got going on and again for listeners out there you can follow Ben on Twitter you can check out his work at foxsports.com, and his Twitter handle is Ben Y. Arthur. So, Ben, thanks for your time, man, and I'll see you soon when the season gets underway.
4: Sounds good, James. Appreciate you having me.
0: Again, that was Ben Arthur for Fox Sports.